If you have your copy of God's Word this morning, I trust that you do. If you don't have one, uh, there's one available there in the pew for you. Uh, We're going to be going to Daniel chapter 5 this morning, Daniel chapter 5. For those of you who are our guests this morning, uh, we have been uh, walking through the book of Daniel and just finding the instruction there. And, And as I have said each week, and I will continue to say until the end of this study, Uh, What we continue to discover uh, week after week, verse after verse, book after book, is the overarching theme of the book of Daniel is not the prophetic and it's not the heroicism of Daniel, but is the sovereignty of God. And watching the sovereignty of God unfold uh, through Daniel's life there as he was in exile in Babylon for some 70 years is an encouragement to us because we understand that just as God's sovereignty worked So majestically and powerfully and specifically in the life of Daniel, it works and operates in the same way in our life. Uh, We are not in isolation from God's sovereignty. Uh, If you are a Christian, your life is operated by the sovereignty of God. However, on the flip side of that, if you are not a Christian, your life operates under the sovereignty and the power of God. It touches all, it accomplishes all, and does whatever He has set forth to do. And it's such an encouraging promise that we find here uh, in the book of Daniel. Now again, this morning we're going to be looking at this entire chapter, but I invite you to stand, and as we stand, we're going to just read a couple of selections uh, of this chapter to kind of set our precedence of where we're going this morning. So if you'll stand with me, Daniel chapter 5, we're going to read uh, the first uh, six verses, and then we will skip down uh, to verse 24 uh, as we read this morning. And this is the word of the Lord. Belshazzar the king held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles, and he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. When Belshazzar tasted the wine, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar his father had taken out of the temple which was in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God which is in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank the wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Suddenly, the fingers of a man's hand emerged and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the back of the hand that did the writing. And then the king's face grew pale, and his thoughts alarmed him. And his hip joints went slack, and his knees began knocking together. Now let's go down to verse 24. Then the hand was sent from him... And this inscription was written out. Now this is the inscription that was written out. Many, many tackle you farsen. And this is the interpretation of the message. Many. God has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found deficient. Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and the Persians. Then Belshazzar, Belshazzar gave orders and they clothed Daniel with purple and put a, purple necklace, put a necklace of gold on his neck and issued a proclamation concerning him that he now had authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. That same night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was slain. So Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. You can be seated this morning. It's a very interesting story we find here in Daniel chapter 5. There's a lot of comparisons that along the way that we will make between Belshazzar and, again, Nebuchadnezzar. But what we find here, again, is a king who has been filled with pride and arrogance, a king who has allowed his position, his authority, and his own perceived glory to cause him to lose perspective of what was true. And there's a danger, my friends, that each of us find in our own selves in the story of Belshazzar and even in the story of Nebuchadnezzar that we can allow our own selves to become filled with pride and arrogance of who we are and the things that we possess and the things that we have and forget whom has truly given us those things and whom is truly over all those things. And if you remember, that was the lesson that Nebuchadnezzar had to learn, that everything that he possessed, not only his political and majestic power and military might, but everything that he was given, that he ruled over, that he was supreme over, that God acknowledged, I have given all of this to you, but Nebuchadnezzar had to learn that everything in life came to him through the hand of a sovereign God, and just as quickly, everything that he had could be taken away from him through the hand of a sovereign God. You remember, as he was exiled out into those seven seasons, out into the wilderness to act like a wild animal, it said he was going to be there until he came to the understanding that it was the Most High God who was ruler over all. 
and that he sits on it whomever he wishes. And that that phrase, most high God, refers to that sovereign power of God. We find an opening here in the first few verses of chapter 5 that the king had thrown a great party. I want you to just notice this for just a moment, that he had gathered a thousand of his nobles, and he was drinking wine in the presence of his thousands. Now, as we begin here, I want to just make a note, because if you've done any study outside of what we're doing here on Sunday morning, you may have come across the fact that for many years, uh, the critics of Scripture complained that this was a fiction claimed that this was a fictitious story that was made up by Daniel because Belshazzar's name was not found anywhere in the official records of Babylon. Uh, But it wasn't until the 20th century that several archaeological discoveries were made that listed Belshazzar as part of the authority in the kingdom there in Babylon. Uh, Consequently so that all those who had been critics of its truth had to admit that they were wrong. Some of them were already passed away, but it has now been proven that Belshazzar was, in fact, a person. He did exist, and he was there in Babylon at the time that Daniel wrote about him. And what had happened here in Babylon was, was really interesting. After Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon, until its end, really entered a period of time where there was a lot of murder, mayhem, and corruption inside of the, of the kings and inside of the political system there. After Nebuchadnezzar, his son, evil Merodach, became king. And he only ruled for a few years until he was murdered by his own brother-in-law, Negalassar, who ruled for four years. Then his son took over and then only ruled for two months until he was assassinated by Nabadonius, who was actually Belshazzar's father. So we find here that this lineage of power and progression has been one that was very corrupt ever since Nebuchadnezzar had left the throne. And so now Belshazzar, who I said was the son of Nabadonius, the king, was not actually king in the official sense. His father was still king, but towards the end of his father's reign, his father had left and gone to Teman and was actually ruling from Teman. And so he had left Belshazzar over Babylon. So in all intents and purposes, Belshazzar was the king. Everybody recognized him as the ruler and leader of Babylon because his father had placed him there. Which, in fact, is why, you notice later on, when Belshazzar offers a promise to both Daniel and the wise men, he says that they would be the third in charge in Babylon. And you would think, well, why the third in charge? Well, because he was actually second in charge. His father was the official king. He was ruling in kind of a de facto king in his father's absence. So the only position he could give would actually be the third in charge there in Babylon. So as this book opens, or as this chapter opens, we find him throwing a great party. There's a great multitude of people who were gathered here. It says for a thousand of his nobles. Now, it's not specifically referring to exactly a thousand people. It's a round number being used to signify that this is a, a, an outrageous number of people who are gathered together. And what we find in the course of human history is that when kings or political leaders or any of these men get filled up with pride, what is the one thing that they do? They want to bring everybody they can together to demonstrate their pride and arrogance. You think about uh, the rise of, of Nazi Germany, you think about the rise of, of, of communism in Russia where they would hold these great feats of military prowess. You think even still today in North Korea where they gather all the people together and they bring all the soldiers out and all the weapons out and all these things out to demonstrate, look at how great and majestic and powerful we are. This is exactly what Belshazzar was doing. He, he was gathering to have this great party to demonstrate how authoritative he was, how powerful he was, how rich he was. In fact, it's interesting to find there in verse 1 that he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. What that means was as all these people were gathered around partying and celebrating, Belshazzar had positioned himself in a place where everybody there could watch him as the party progressed. He wanted to be the center of attention. It helps us to know a little bit about Belshazzar's state of mind and of his pride. A great multitude of people are gathered here together. Now, what's happening here is that as the party goes on, more wine is being drank and more wine is being drank. And the more the party goes on, the more drunk that Belshazzar becomes. We find here, again, the dangers of these kinds of things, not only just a pride and a power, but of combining alcohol with the position and the pride and of arrogance. I want you to take note here for just a moment, because we'll come back to it at the very end, that in the midst of this, something else is taking place. Belshazzar is so focused on celebrating that he's not worried about the thing that he actually should be most desperately concerned with. 
Just remember that, and we'll come back in just a moment. So Belshazzar, verse 2 says, he tasted the wine. And again, the original language speaks to the idea that he's drinking more and more and more. He's really drinking himself into a stupor. So the more drank, the more he drank, the more brazen he became. Ultimately, to the point in verse 2, it tells us that he gave orders to bring the gold and the silver vessels, which Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple, which was in Jerusalem. Now, you may note for just a second there, as I gave his lineage, you say, well, it says that Nebuchadnezzar was his father. Well, he's not using, Daniel here is not using father in the sense of a genealogical as a direct descendant of being his father, but using it more so as an ancestor. You remember the Jews would always refer to Abraham as Father Abraham. It's speaking to it in the sense of that his ancestor, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken these gold and these silver vessels out of the temple in Jerusalem. Now, what would these golden vessels be? These would have been vessels, items that would have been used in the sacrificial system for the Jews there in Jerusalem. These were very important things to Jews. These were very holy things to the Jews. These were things that were only used in the temple. They were not common vessels that were to be used by anyone. These were specifically only to be used in the worship and in the presence of God in the midst of that worship. But there was no respect from Belshazzar for these holy items. He had no respect for the God of Jerusalem, the God of Israel. He had no respect for the religious system. And in fact, all he was wanting to do was to impress the people who were gathered around him. Again, in a position of pride and arrogance and power, he had these vessels brought out, verse 2 tells us, so that he, his nobles, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. And so it says that they did just that. Verse 3 says they brought them out and that they all drank from them. But notice what else they did in verse 4. It says, They drank the wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. They desecrated these items not, not only by bringing them out and using them for common drinking, but they also blasphemed because they used them to praise false deities. So they were, they were abusing these things really in two different ways. Number one, just using them for a common use. But secondly, and perhaps most grotesque of all, they were using them to glorify false gods, false deities, and using these items that were only intended to worship the true God of the universe to worship gods that did not actually exist. I would remind you of what Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 6. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. So this party is going on, and excuse me, and 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 Belshazzar has has really risen to this ultimate desecration of these holy things that God had given to His people. But suddenly something happens. Look at verse five. There was a terrifying message that was given to Belshazzar. I love that word there because it, it speaks to the moment. You can imagine all of these people gathered together. I mean, the, the, the wine is, is, is flowing like water. I mean, they're just having a great time. And you, you can even imagine that as they have these holy vessels, these gold and silver vessels, I mean, that they're just laughing and carrying on. I mean, we've, we've all seen a party where people have had far too much to drink, right? And they're laughing and, 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 and chortling and just, you know, just having a great time. And then all of a sudden, Here in the palace, a giant hand appears and begins to write a message on the wall of the palace. It says, suddenly, the fingers of a man's hand emerged and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the back of the hand that did the writing. Now, it's hard for us to even comprehend this, right? It seems so out there. It seems so foreign to us that this would happen, but it did happen. It's not an imagination. It's not something that that the king was just imagining in his drunken stupor. He saw it, it visibly saw it, and it wrote on the wall. A message by this giant hand was being written on the wall of the palace. And notice what it says that it did to the king. It says the king's face grew pale, and his thoughts alarmed him, and his hip joints went slack, and his knees began knocking together. You want to talk about bringing a quick and sudden end to a party. This did it. All of a sudden, the attitude in the room changed. All of a sudden, there was no laughing and joking 
But now everything was driven to this fact that the king was terrified. Now, it's one thing for the people to be terrified. But the king is always supposed to be the one who never shows any fear. The, the king is the one who always stands the strongest. That when the enemy's at the gate, the people may be clamoring and saying, Oh, king, what shall we do? And the king always is the one who stands there without fear and says, No, I have no worries. We've got it handled. We, we, we don't have anything to worry about. But now here in this moment, not only is the king afraid, he is terrified. His knees are knocking. He has lost all color in his face. It's just drained out of him. In fact, one commentator points to the fact of this, for it says that his hip joints went slack, speaks to the idea that he actually wet himself. This is how terrified the king is. That in this moment, he has lost all control of bodily functions. His face is pale, his knees are knocking, and immediately it says that he calls out to the wise men. He calls out to these wise men as his ancestor Nebuchadnezzar had done before. Because he needed to know, much as Nebuchadnezzar had needed to know immediately, I've got to know what does this mean? What is this message that is being given to us? So he calls the wise men before him there in verse 7. And again, like Nebuchadnezzar, he offers them this great promise, perhaps with the hopes that by offering something so grand, by offering riches and power and authority and a position as a, as a third ruler in the kingdom, he was hoping that one of these wise men would be able to, to at least give some type of explanation to him. But verse 8 tells us that just as it happened with Nebuchadnezzar, that all the wise men came in, but they could not read the inscription or make known its interpretation to the king. No doubt... The temptation was great for these wise men. All these men are being called in, and they're promised, you're going to have a necklace of gold around your neck. You're going to be clothed with purple, which was the color of royalty. You're going to have position as the third ruler in the kingdom. No doubt there was a great temptation for them to just try to drum up any kind of interpretation that they could. But again, here we see a picture of God's sovereignty because he stopped the minds in the mouth of these wise men that they could not say anything in response to the king. They had nothing to offer him. They had nothing to give him because yet God's man had not arrived on the scene. God stopped their mouth and did not allow them to say anything because God wanted Daniel to be the one who delivered his message to the king. God is sovereign, not just over the actions of the world. God is sovereign over people's minds and mouths. He can keep them from thinking. He can keep them from speaking if he so decrees and desires for it to be. In light of their failure, King Belshazzar grew even more fearful. Look at verse 9. He was greatly alarmed. His face grew even paler, and his nobles were perplexed. So as terrified as Belshazzar was before, now it's even worse. He's even more color is draining away from his face. And you can just imagine this, right? All of these people are still gathered here by all accounts. All these people are still gathered here that were just once, just a few minutes ago, celebrating and drinking and partying with Belshazzar. And now they look up here on this throne and they see this man who is quaking in his own shoes, pale as a ghost, sweating, fearful, just fear driven all over his face. But then somebody else enters the room. Verse 10 tells us, and the queen entered the banquet hall because of the words of the king and his nobles. Now, this is not Belshazzar's wife, because we've already been told by Daniel that Belshazzar's wife and his concubines were there. But this is actually the queen mother. This is most likely because of her recollection and her familiarity with what happened during Nebuchadnezzar's reign. This was most likely Nebuchadnezzar's widow. She was still alive. She was still around. And because of her position of power, she was still referred to as the queen. She was the queen mother in the kingdom. It's interesting to note that she wasn't at the banquet, probably because she recognized the foolish activities of what Belshazzar was doing. She recognized what was going on, and she wanted to have no part of it. But she heard. I, I find it interesting. She said she, because of the words of the king and his nobles, she had heard what was going on. No doubt there was a lot of fear in the room, even being exercised vocally. And so here she comes into the room, and she speaks such a beautiful word of promise to him. 
She says, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts alarm you or your face be pale. She's basically telling him, don't, don't worry, I know what you should do. And we can just imagine that, that Belshazzar's ears in this moment perked up. Because she's, she's telling him, do not be afraid. Don't be fearful, because I know what we should do. Verse 11 tells us, she says, there's a holy man, there's, there's a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And in the days of your father, illumination, insight, and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, appointed him chief of the magicians, conjurers, Chaldeans, and diviners. This was because an extraordinary spirit, knowledge and insight, interpretation of dreams, explanation of enigmas, and solving of difficult problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belshazzar. Let Daniel now be summoned, and he will declare the interpretation. The queen brought to Belshazzar's remembrance that there was someone in the kingdom who knew what would be happening and who could bring an interpretation to this writing. And notice the description she gives in him, in whom is the spirit of the holy God. She recognized, not to the same position that we know Nebuchadnezzar came to, but to the same position that she understood that there was something about Daniel that separated him from the rest of the holy men or the rest of the wise men in Babylon that he had an illumination and insight and wisdom that could only be given to somebody as it came directly from a God. She didn't have the recognition of Daniel being the one that served the true God as Nebuchadnezzar had done, but she recognized that there was something different about him. Now, what's interesting, again, is the fact that Daniel had been placed as the chief of the magicians, but sometime during the period between when Nebuchadnezzar had died and now he was no longer still serving in that position. And we don't know why. Daniel doesn't give us any allusion to that, and neither does uh, any other part of history. But something had happened in that time. But there was a period of time here where Daniel was serving in that position. Now he's not. But his work and his ministry and the power that he demonstrated had not been forgotten by the queen mother. But it had been forgotten by Belshazzar. He should have known these things. He should have remembered these things. In fact, Daniel's going to point this out to him later. But she tells the king, summon Daniel, have him brought in, and he will be able to give you the interpretation that you seek. Verse 13 tells us that Daniel was brought in before the king. And although the king was seeking Daniel's help here, we find in his language towards Daniel that he's actually quite demeaning. It almost seems that the fact that he doesn't really truly believe what the queen had told him, and that because he understands where Daniel came from, that he's very doubtful as to the power and the authority that he has. And in fact, it's almost that he wants to declare to Daniel, I'm going to ask you this, but you need to understand that I'm the one who's really still in control. Look at verse 13. It says, Then Daniel was brought in before the king. And the king spoke to him and said, Are you that Daniel? who is one of the exiles from Judah, whom my father the king brought from Judah. Notice he doesn't use the language that the queen did. She said that he is one who had the spirit of the holy gods, the one who had the wisdom of the gods, the one who had an extraordinary spirit of knowledge and insight. It seems that Daniel would have been called in and the king would have said, are you Daniel who is in you has one of the spirit of the gods? But no, he wanted to point out specifically, you're just one of those old Jews. You're just one of those old exiles that we brought out of Jerusalem. You're one of those who are much lower than me. He wanted to point that out to Daniel. He wanted to emphasize that. Now, verse 14, he says, Now I've heard about you that a spirit of the gods is in you. In the original language, it's written in such a way that he's saying is like, Now this is what I've heard, but I don't know if it's really true. This is what they claim about you, that you have a spirit of the gods in you, and that illumination, insight, and extraordinary wisdom have been found. But I really have a hard time believing that that's really true because I know what you are. You're just one of those exiles. He relates to Daniel what had happened here. He says that the wise men, the conjurers were brought in. They could not read the inscription or make its interpretation known to me. Notice there that it's pointed out that not only could these wise men not even make the interpretation, they couldn't even read what it said. It was in some type of language, script, or font 
that these wise men had never seen before. They couldn't even read the words on the wall, let alone interpret them. But Belshazzar still wanted to know. He wanted to know what it said. He wanted to know what it meant for him. No doubt that he understood, as Nebuchadnezzar had partially understood, that this related to him. In fact, many commentators pointed out that Belshazzar, probably because of the significance of how these events unfolded, recognized at least partially that this was happening because what he had just done with the vessels of gold and silver from Jerusalem. And that perhaps this is why he was so angry with Daniel, because Daniel represented that God and that deity that those vessels were supposed to be used to honor. Verse 16, he says, But I have heard about you, that you're able to give interpretations and solve difficult problems. Now, if you're able to read the inscription and make its interpretation known to me, you'll be clothed with purple and wear a necklace of gold around your neck and will have the authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. So the king makes the same promise to Daniel as he had done to all the other wise men. He said, they failed, but if you can do it, and I've heard that you can, I've been told that you have this ability, I will offer to you the same level of promise, gold, purple, and the third position in the kingdom. Now for Daniel, this was not an unusual position for him to find himself in. He had found himself there with Nebuchadnezzar on two different occasions. But I want you to notice the integrity of Daniel. Look at verse 17. Daniel here delivers a message to the king. In fact, he preaches a sermon to the king. But notice what he says first. He says there in verse 17, keep your gifts for yourself or give your rewards to someone else. However, I will read the inscription to the king and make the interpretation known to him. Daniel's pointing out two things to the king. Number one is that spiritual gifts cannot be bought. You remember what the Scripture tells us in the book of Acts when Simon the magician tried to buy the apostles' teaching. He says, Now when Simon saw the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this authority to me as well, so that everyone whom I may lay hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. Daniel did not want the king to think that he was giving him this interpretation or that God was giving this interpretation solely because the king had offered him great riches and power because spiritual gifts, the work of God, cannot be bought. And secondly, he was showing the king that not only can spiritual gifts not be bought, but that God's man cannot be bought. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 tells us, But just as when we be approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. He was telling the king, you can offer me everything in the world, and it's not going to change my interpretation because I'm going to give you the interpretation that God has spoken, not what you desire to hear or what you are attempting to cause me to give you by giving me great riches and power. He says, however, keep your gifts, keep your power, but I will still make the interpretation known to you. Because Daniel understood that he was in this position, that he was where he was by the sovereignty of God. He he was standing now again before the king, offering this interpretation because God had placed him there for this moment. God had a purpose in his plan, and Daniel was a part of it. So he knew that God was going to take care of him. And he didn't want to be tempted by the allures of the king to soften the message. Daniel already knew what he was going to have to declare. And he didn't want to be tempted to soften the message. He knew if he accepted, there would be a temptation in his heart to to maybe temper the message down just a little bit. Now look with me at verse 18, because before Daniel offers the interpretation, I want you to know this, from verse 18 all the way down to verse 25, he doesn't even get to the interpretation yet. It's not till verse 25 that he actually starts interpreting the message on the wall. Everything from 18 forward to that point is a sermon that he's delivering to Belshazzar for Belshazzar to really understand what's going on here. He needs to understand why God is delivering this message to him and how this is going to apply in his life. He needed to see that message through the lens of, of God's work in the past. Verse 18, he begins by talking about Nebuchadnezzar. 
And he reminds Belshazzar that it was God who had raised up Nebuchadnezzar and who had given Nebuchadnezzar what he possessed. He said, the most high God, remember, there's that phrase again, most high God, the sovereign God granted sovereignty, grandeur, glory, and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar, your father. The interesting thing about what Daniel is pointing out here is he is comparing and contrasting Belshazzar with Nebuchadnezzar. And he's declaring that everything that Nebuchadnezzar had, that Belshazzar does not. All these things God had granted to him, but he has not granted to you. But yet you act like you have the same things that Nebuchadnezzar had. Verse 19, he talks about the grandeur that God bestowed upon Nebuchadnezzar. And listen how he describes it. He says, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language feared and trembled before him. That's a pretty powerful place to be as a leader, that all the peoples of the earth, all the known world, and every language feared and trembled before him. This is how majestic, how great of a power that Nebuchadnezzar was. But he goes even further. It says, whoever he wished to kill, he killed. Whoever he wished to be spared, he spared. He elevated who he wanted to hum- elevate, and he humbled who he wanted to humble. God had granted Nebuchadnezzar almost seemingly, uh, uh, as he described it in verse 18, this sovereign power, because Nebuchadnezzar was pretty much able to do what he wanted to do. But again, we, we must not miss the fact that although earthly it seemed that Nebuchadnezzar could do whatever he wanted to do, it was only because God had placed him in the position to do so. And at any moment, God could take that power and authority away. We need to be reminded of that fact when we look at the world around us and we see political leaders or military might that grows to the position and we think, well, why is that happening? It's happening because God is allowing it to happen. And just as certainly as God is allowing it to happen, he could stop it instantaneously. It does not take another great leader to rise up. God can cause it to crumble and fall away in a moment, as we're going to see in just a second. So here was Nebuchadnezzar. He's given Belshazzar this history lesson. Here was Nebuchadnezzar, who had all this great might, all this great power, all this great authority. But verse 20 tells us the downfall of every human heart when they are filled with pride and arrogance. It says his heart was lifted up and his spirit became so proud that he behaved arrogantly. Nebuchadnezzar forgot. He didn't understand. He did not give credence to the fact that it was God who had done what he had done. Nebuchadnezzar tried to claim all the glory for himself. You remember that phrase there in the earlier chapter where Nebuchadnezzar was standing on the roof of the palace and he said, is this not mighty Babylon that I have built, that I deserve all the glory? And remember, it was instantly in that moment that God spoke to him and said, now it's all going to be taken away. He was filled with pride. He was filled with arrogance. And so Daniel, again, reminds Belshazzar, he was disposed from his royal throne and his glory was taken away from him. Pride will always lead to a downfall. Always. If we do not crush our pride, it will always lead to our downfall. Nebuchadnezzar refused to crush his pride. And so ultimately it meant that his kingdom was taken away. He reminds, Neb- he reminds Belshazzar how far Nebuchadnezzar had to fall. Right? It wasn't that he was just taken off the throne, but that he was driven out into the wilderness and made to live like a beast, with grass to eat and his body drenched with the dew of heaven. And why was all this happening? It tells us again there in verse 21 that he might recognize that the Most High God is the ruler over the realm of mankind and that he sets it over whom he wishes. Nebuchadnezzar was driven out into the wilderness to live like a wild animal until he recognized the sovereignty and the power of God. That it was God who had given Nebuchadnezzar what he possessed, not his own strength, not his own might, all by the power of God. Now look at verse 22, because verse 22 is where Daniel really drives the nail in the coffin to Belshazzar. He says, yet you, his son, his descendant, Belshazzar, you have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all this. There there is no doubt that in the kingdom of Babylon, that everyone in that family knew what had happened to Nebuchadnezzar. It might not have been as knowledgeable in the common people of Babylon, but everyone in the royal family would have known what had happened to Nebuchadnezzar. 
that he had been gone for those seven seasons, that he had been humbled down to where he acted like a wild animal. He had lost his mind out in the wilderness. And Daniel here specifically points this out. He says, you knew all this. Now, in reading the earlier part of the chapter, we would think that Belshazzar is totally ignorant of all these things that had happened. But in fact, he was not ignorant that it had happened. He had just forgotten that he'd known. You remember there's the old phrase, those who forget the past are doomed to repeat it. We see this being played out full well in the life of Belshazzar because he knew this. He had been taught this. But sadly and unfortunately, sometimes our pride causes us to forget the things that we truly know because we begin to believe the lie that we've told ourselves that we don't need anything else, that we are the supreme and the sovereign in our lives. So why would Belshazzar need to remember what God had done through Nebuchadnezzar when he thought he was greater than Nebuchadnezzar, when he thought he was more powerful, when he thought he was greater than any of the other gods? Why would he even need to remember those things? But Daniel points out to him, you've not humbled your heart. You should have looked at your life and compared it with Nebuchadnezzar and suddenly realized, oh, wait, I don't want to do that. Because I saw what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. That should have served as a lifelong example for every king in Babylon to recognize what had happened and say, I don't want to do the same. But sadly, that's not what the human heart does, is it? We can read the Bible and see countless examples of people who have fallen into gross, negligent sin, who have made stupid decisions, and yet what do we do? We repeat some of those same dumb decisions in our own life because we refuse to recognize and to admit that we are much the same. Daniel continues with his pointed examination of Belshazzar. He says, you didn't humble your heart. He said, but you've exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven, and they have brought the vessels out, and you've been drinking from them. He says, not only have you been drinking from them, you're praising the gods of silver, of bronze, of iron, and wood, and stone, which do not hear or understand. Remember that, uh, the scripture that was read from us from the book of Psalms this morning. You have ears, but you cannot hear. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. This is what Daniel is pointing to. He says, instead of learning the lesson of Nebuchadnezzar, you have exalted yourself. You have filled yourself up with pride. Now, we thought that Nebuchadnezzar was perhaps one of the most pride-filled, arrogant people that we've ever seen in the Scriptures. But Belshazzar goes even further because he did something that even Nebuchadnezzar did not do, and that he desecrated these holy vessels from Jerusalem. He praised these false deities. And notice what Daniel says here, greatest of all, he says, you did not glorify the very God in whom is your life breath. He says, you've been praising all these other false deities and you did not glorify the God who holds your very life in his hand. Now, Daniel says, this is the, this, the hand that was sent out from him and the inscription that was written out. He makes it very clear to Belshazzar that the message that was written on the wall was from this most holy God. It was not from some unknown deity. It was not from some God of Babylon. This message was from the God of Israel, the most holy God, the one who controls your very life, Belshazzar. Even though you have not humbled yourself, you have not submitted yourself to him, now God has sent you this message. It's a simple phrase. Many, many, tekel, eupharsin. Each one of these words signifies a different ranking of, of, of currency or, or measure, but each one means a different thing. The first word, many, is repeated twice, and it means that God had numbered the kingdom of Belshazzar and that it had come up wanting. It was light. I mean, God had numbered the kingdom and put an end to it. It speaks here of God's sovereignty, that he is the one who makes kings rise and fall. He says, God has numbered your kingdom. He has evaluated it, and he has decided that it is no longer fit. It is going to be brought to an end. That word tekel means to be weighed on the scales. Now, we don't use scales much anymore as we uh, used to do back in, in, in days gone by. But you think about the scales that the figure of justice holds in her hand. Or the scales that you might see on an old show in a general store somewhere. We had two balances on each side, and you would put the item to be measured here, and you would put other things on the other side, the weights, in order to measure out to find the weight of something. The Scripture is saying, Daniel is saying, 
that God has weighed Belshazzar's kingdom. He's weighed his spiritual life, and it has been found deficient because he would not give glory to God. He would not give recognition to God. He would not give honor to God. And then that last word, and you notice there in verse 25, it says euphorsin. That is the the plural. And then the singular of that is peres in verse 28. And basically what he's saying here is that the kingdom is going to be divided and given over to the Medes and the Persians. They're not going to be two different kingdoms. In fact, the Medes and the Persians were a combined force that ruled together there in Babylon as they captured it and took it over. What we find happening here is that that second kingdom in the statue is getting ready to start ruling. You remember when Nebuchadnezzar saw the statue of gold and then the chest was of silver, which represented the Medes and the Persians. What we're finding here is the fulfillment of God's word in that the kingdom of Babylon was going to be destroyed and this new kingdom was going to be taken over. The prophecy has been given. The interpretation has been declared. Now I want you to notice finally as we wrap up here how God fulfills his perfect word. Verse 29 tells us that after Daniel gave the prophecy, you might expect the king to respond angrily. But he, he was a man of his word. He gave orders and they clothed Daniel with purple and put a necklace of gold around his neck and this proclamation that he's now the third ruler in the kingdom. And we might ask the question, well, I thought Daniel refused that. And he did. He refused it on behalf that he didn't want to make a picture that, that God's word or God's power could be bought. But what Daniel knows and understands, which the king does not yet understand, is that whatever the king does in this moment is not going to matter here in just a few moments. He could give him the first position in the kingdom and it's not going to matter. He could give him all the gold in the kingdom and it's not going to matter. Daniel understood this, so it's basically just a circumstance that he went along with. Now, verse 30, the more I've studied this this week, the more... I've just been trying to wrap my mind around this. And and there's some powerful things that I want us to pick up here just in these last couple of verses that we need to understand. Look at verse 30. That same night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was slain. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 15 tells us, Therefore his calamity will come suddenly. Instantly he will be broken, and there will be no healing. There's something powerful for us to understand here. Because you remember Nebuchadnezzar, in all of his pride, and all of his arrogance, God granted him a year's relief before he brought upon him his punishment. Before he entered those seven seasons of being out in the wilderness, God granted him an entire year. And then after those seven seasons, God brought him to a place of restoration because Nebuchadnezzar recognized and admitted that, the God, was, that God was the true God of all the universe, and God restored him back to his throne. Neb- excuse me, Belshazzar doesn't even get 24 hours. The the party happens here, the party's carrying on, and this message comes, Daniel comes in, he interprets it, and the same day, just earlier, they'd been partying and celebrating, he thought everything was going great in the kingdom, and now suddenly he's dead. Now, you remember earlier I told you that there was something else going on at the same time that we needed to be aware of. Because, see, the city of Babylon had been under siege from Cyrus and the Medes and the Persians for quite a while when all this party was taking place. And so Belshazzar had, had acquired a supply, excuse me, a supply and a surplus that they thought would last them some 20 years. Because remember, the city of Babylon was this great walled fortress. In some places, the walls were up to six feet thick. Belshazzar wasn't worried about anybody coming over the walls. In fact, they didn't even guard the walls in Babylon because they were so tall and so thick, they were not worried about anybody coming in. So they had brought all this food and secured it into the city, enough to last them some 20 years. Nebuchadnezzar, excuse me, Belshazzar was so focused on himself that he missed what was happening right literally underneath him. Now they had all the food in the city, But now the water for Babylon came in from the Euphrates. And it came in on one side of the city through a tunnel and it exited out the other side of the city on a tunnel. So what did the the Medes and the Persians do? Well, they dug a ditch. And they dug a ditch from the Euphrates to a nearby lake and they funneled all the water from the river over to that lake. 
And when all the water was diverted, that left two entrances to Babylon, one where the water entered the kingdom and the one where the water exited the kingdom. And in the same night as Belshazzar was up there partying and celebrating, the Persians entered in through those two tunnels and overtook the city and killed Belshazzar. He was so prideful that he didn't even recognize the danger that was right underneath him. He didn't recognize that destruction was coming upon him very handily. Brothers and sisters, our pride can cause us to miss the obvious things that are happening around us. Our pride can cause us to be blind. Our sin can cause us to be blind to the very danger that faces us in front of us. And the one thing that we need to understand about what's happening here from Belshazzar and compared with Nebuchadnezzar is that we cannot presume on the mercy of God. It would be very easy to look and say, oh, well, God gave Nebuchadnezzar a year after he warned him. God will surely give me a year. But he didn't give Belshazzar a year. Belshazzar did not repent. He did not humble himself. And so God executed his justice almost instantly. How many of you in this room have heard someone say to you, oh, well, yeah, I've got plenty of time to get right with God. You know, I'm only 35 years old. I've got plenty of time to get right with God. I'll do that tomorrow. You know, that's a good thing. You know, what you're saying is true, but I'll, I'll get right with God tomorrow. Brothers and sisters, we can never presume on the mercy of God. The very fact that you're sitting here in this room right now is God's demonstrable mercy on your life. He allowed you to be here to hear what he is teaching us through this word now, but he's not guaranteeing you tomorrow. My friends, God is not even guaranteeing you this afternoon. If you're here this morning and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, this is God's beckoning warning and judgment to you. Turn to him now. Flee from sin. Repent of your pride, repent of your arrogance, and flee to the mercy that God now bestows and offers to you in this moment. Don't wait. Don't presume upon His mercy. Don't presume upon His grace because He has not guaranteed it to any of us. No doubt Belshazzar thought that everything was going to be okay because it had been okay for Nebuchadnezzar. He had come out on the other side. He remembered. He saw and we can assume and we know that he thought everything was going to be okay because he was bestowing all these things upon Daniel as if everything was going to be normal when the morning broke. But suddenly, justice came to Belshazzar. This was the end of the Babylonian rule. This was the end of their kingdom. The Medes and the Persians would come in and take over and this kingdom that had been so great, so powerful, so majestic under Nebuchadnezzar was now gone forever. Its downfall and its end was prophesied in Isaiah chapter 47. Listen to these words, because it speaks so poignantly to what happened, but it speaks poignantly to us as well. Isaiah chapter 47, verse 10, You felt secure in your wickedness and said, No one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge, they have deluded you. For you have said in your heart, I am and there is no one besides me. But evil will come upon you, which you will not know how to charm away. And disaster will fall on you, for you cannot atone. And destruction, about which you do not know, will come upon you suddenly. Brothers and sisters, may we be sure this morning that we find ourselves in the arms of a merciful God. May we be sure this morning that our minds and our hearts are not filled with pride and arrogance as Belshazzar's was. But if that's you this morning, here's the good news. The good news is that the Scripture tells us that God is ready, rich in mercy and ready to forgive that if our pride and our arrogance have filled up our hearts to think that we're greater than God and more powerful than Him, in this moment you can go to Him and you can repent of those things and He will forgive you. He will bestow upon you His mercy and His grace. For those of us in this room this morning who are believers, what an encouragement it is to know that God's sovereignty is at work in every situation. As I said last week, and I, I have continued to, to preach this to myself almost every single day, I don't think outside of the gospel outside of the understanding of what God did through Jesus Christ, I don't know that there's anything more important that we need to remind ourselves of every day of that God is sovereign and that He is the one who rules and reigns and causes and controls all things in this life. Because right now, things may be great for us. 
Things may be going along handily, just as we want them to and desire them to. But there's going to come a day when it's not so. There's going to come a day when we get bad news. There's going to come a day when we get something that happens to us that is soul-crushing to us. There's going to become a day that something happens in the world that we feel terror and anxiety, and we're going to be tempted to doubt. But if we have built our life upon this premise that God is sovereign, and we remind ourselves of that every single day, then when things change and things don't go our way, they're not as soul-crushing as they once were. I'm not saying that we don't still feel emotion, but it's not a thing that crushes us down to the point of despair because we understand that everything comes to us through the hand of a sovereign God and that He has promised. He has promised to us that all things He will work together for good for those who loved Him and are called according to His purpose. There are many of us in this room this morning who could testify of that fact, that we have walked through seasons that for some people would have driven them crazy, that for some people would have driven them to despair. But we've walked through those seasons, and although they may have been difficult, we've come out on the other side trusting and celebrating in the goodness and the faithfulness of God. And God is able to do this, and He will do this for you. Take hope in that. Cling to that promise that because God is sovereign, that we have nothing to fear. Let's pray this morning. Thank you, Lord, for your graciousness towards us. Father, we thank you that your Scripture is rich in promises, but Father, we also thank you that sometimes your Scripture is rich in warning because we need to be reminded of the warnings of pride and arrogance and foolish living. Father, we need to be reminded of, of the warnings that you give that we may, Father, use them to caution the attitudes and behaviors of our own life, but Father, also to remind us of those people that we come into contact with of, Lord, how desperately they need to know who you are, because, Father, your mercy is not guaranteed forever. You have bestowed mercy in so many different ways. We see your long-suffering towards people. As the Scripture says, that you're long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. So, Father, we pray that we will be reminded each day of your sovereignty. Lord, that your sovereignty does not, um, does not occlude the response of us towards you. Father, it does not take away the responsibility of actions, uh, Lord, that men and women will be held accountable for the things that they've done. But Lord, just to know that in this life, that as we watch things unfold around us, that they unfold because you knew they would unfold. That they unfold, Father, because you have caused them to unfold. You have planned them. You have purposed them. That everything before the foundation of the world, Lord, you knew that here in November 2023, you knew who would be gathered in this room. You knew who would not be here. Lord, help us to trust more and more in you and your perfect plan. And most importantly, Father, that you are the Most High God, the sovereign creator of all the universe, the one who rules and reigns and controls. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.